But when I say the word maturity, what comes to mind? Webster's explains it as full development. As for the parents in the room, we certainly understand that our children go through different stages of maturity along the way. What about marriages, too, as well? By God's grace, my wife and I, over time, have progressed in our development, if we use that Webster's explanation, of our love for one another and our love for the Lord. This is certainly the case, I'm sure, for your marriages, too, as well. One thing's for sure, though. I'm sure we all would agree. Whether it's children or marriages... With increased maturity comes increased success. Would you agree? Amen. We're just more equipped with a maturity to handle the ups and downs that life often throws at us. Even in certain sections of corporate America, something called maturity models are often utilized to examine the performance of certain corporations, a sort of litmus test, if you will, to look at the success of a certain corporation. Maturity model is what it's called. And those models prioritize learning and proved capability and greater alignment of teams are often touted as a tremendous model for examining the success of that corporation. Maturity obviously produces good fruit. It does so for the church as well. That begs the question, what about the church? What about maturity for the church? Unfortunately, throughout church history, far too often we've seen the contrary. Even in our day, we continue to see the effects of immaturity within the church. Just recently, John MacArthur was even quoted as saying, it's almost as if we're living in a pre-Christian state. How do we get there? What's contributed to that? I really think most of it has nothing to do with the culture in and of itself, which often the church argues is the reason why we're at where we're at. I would argue that in many respects it has to do with the failure of the church in and of itself throughout history and even, in, even into our day and age. The issue lies with the church's neglect of a certain truth. Christ has designed the church for maturity. This is the central thrust behind Ephesians 4 verses 11 through 16. Although, just because Christ has designed the church for maturity, does this mean that we sit back and, and just relish that design in and of itself? Does this mean that we sit back and rest on our laurels, so to speak? If I could use that old term terminology. May it never be. I would hope that we would never grow complacent 
and our commitment to follow God's design for maturity within the church. Far too often, whether in the past or even in this day and age, the church has either caved in to the culture around it or established tradition as opposed to the prescriptive word of God in pursuing maturity. I don't have to tell you this. I know you know it. But that's a recipe for immaturity at the least, which inevitably contributes to difficult times within the church and ultimately the culture. This is what I believe is behind the predicament that even we find ourselves in within this 21st century culture of the church of our day. That said, though, the good news is is there is no need for any secular maturity model for us. We have the authoritative and living manual for maturity. Amen? The inspired word of God which speaks directly to how the church can live and walk and operate in maturity. It became increasingly clear for me as I was working my way through preparing for this message. I thought that I would be able to preach verses 11 through 16 in one message, but it's not going to happen. Some of you already know, this is part one of part two concerning the characteristics of a mature church. Today, I want us to look at just two. Two characteristics from verses 11 through 13. And then next week, three more characteristics, 14 through 16, the verses. So, I invite you to turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. The title of today's message is The Characteristics of a Mature Church. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. I will read the entire text. Today will only be in verses 11 through 13. But just for us to stay steeped in this passage as we consider how we might pursue maturity in Christ. Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16 reads, And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result... We are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Amen. You may be seated. Our first characteristic here this morning is number one, biblical leadership 
We'll see this in verse 11 and the first part of verse 12. And before we jump into biblical leadership, I think big picture wise, it's helpful for us to recall the preceding context that we've looked at, especially beginning in chapter four. You'll remember that Paul has placed significant emphasis upon doctrine in chapters one through three, and then now transitioning more into an applicational focus in chapters four through six. But to begin chapter four, he began with unity in the church. And then he jumped into diversity in the church. You'll recall that diversity relating to the gifts that everyone contributes to the body for the common good. And then two weeks ago, we looked at a sort of almost parentheses or sidebar that Paul takes, although an extremely important one as he looks to the exalted and ascended Lord Jesus Christ. And then all of that leading up to this focus upon maturity. It makes sense. In essence, you can see Paul's heart for the health of the church. This is where application begins. Christ, as he reigns at the right hand of the Father, has designed the church to be healthy. Yet, we still have a responsibility to pursue that development, as Webster says, concerning maturity. Without patience, humility, and gentleness, without exercising our gifts for the common good, without consistently and collectively looking to the exalted Christ, we can fail at times in our desire to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. At any rate, there's still more that Paul wants to communicate in the beginning of this chapter concerning the health of the church. And it begins with leadership. Even within the secular world, leadership is absolutely critical and essential to maturity and success. We might say it's the drivetrain for the engine of maturity. It's critical that we get this right from a secular perspective, but even more importantly, spiritually speaking, biblical leadership is where Paul begins in verse 11 and the first part of verse 12. Look again with me. He says, And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints. Now, let me very briefly say this concerning the apostles and prophets. We've discussed this quite often. We unpacked it in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. You've heard me make reference to this multiple times concerning potentially about a year and a half ago, I believe, the sermon that I preached called Signs, Wonders, and Miracles with a question mark. So what do we know about these apostles and prophets? We know 
with Scripture interpreting Scripture that the office of apostle and prophet was only foundational to the church. They were for a specific time, for a specific people during the apostolic age. They affirmed their authority to communicate the divine inspired word of God. Now that authority is where? It rests solely in the completed and revealed canon of Scripture, the 66 books of the Bible. In light of that, we truly understand why this message was appropriate for the first century church. First century apostles and prophets were given to confirm their authority for the birth of the church. Not to mention evangelists and pastor teachers continued to build upon that foundation that was laid. Nonetheless, what about after this apostolic age? Well, there's no question for us how this verse continues to apply. If apostles and prophets ceased within the first century, certainly evangelists and pastor teachers continue to build on the foundation that was laid. We understand this. There's not many Orthodox evangelical Christians that would disagree with that. Let me say this about the evangelist first. We know from church history that the early church fathers often looked at the evangelist as successors to the apostles. And this word evangelist is only used in this form two times in the entire New Testament. Either or, there's no debating the significance of gifted men and women when it comes to gospel proclamation. All of us on some level have a responsibility to announce good news. Amen? Just the same. I do believe that there are certain individuals that are more gifted to do so. Obviously, this should be an area of concern for any mature church concerning the work of an evangelist. Paul even commissions Timothy in some of his lasting words as a pastor in the church at Ephesus to do the work of an evangelist. This is important for equipping the saints in the first century or any century for that matter. Be that as it may, the bigger concern here, especially within this church age, is this phrase, and this is where I want to focus most of our attention on, and some as pastors and teachers. Once again, there's no debating the continuation of this office. We don't have time to do a deep dive in a message such as this in 1 Timothy chapter 3 or Titus chapter 1, but Scripture is crystal clear concerning the importance of the pastor. In Acts chapter 20, you don't need to go there. You can write this down and reference it later. Verses 17 and 28, 
Luke actually identifies the three terms that the New Testament uses. They're synonymous terms, meaning the same thing for the biblical leadership of the church. Elder, overseer, or pastor, shepherd. Still though, what about the inclusion of teachers here in this passage? Is Paul alluding to a separate office or separate component or element of leadership? At least maybe on the surface it looks that way. Is that what he's saying? Now, in order to answer this, there's some grammar behind the scenes that I need you to know. Please, Stay with me. I promise you, it's not too technical. I'll do my best to keep it as simple as possible. But this is critical for us to understand a proper awareness of this characteristic of biblical leadership. First off, every conjunction in the original language is the same within this list of leaders except before teachers. Secondly, every description carries an article in the original language except before teacher. There's more I could say here. And some of you may already be, say, be saying, I'm not an English, English grammar expert, Pastor John. I don't even understand what a conjunction or an article is. Don't worry. I needed to express this in order for you to understand what I'm saying here. If you want more information, we can speak later. But this is important for us to understand why this grammatical information is helpful. It helps us to identify a key point here. These are not separate leaders. They're the same person. These are pastors or you could say teaching pastors in particular. And he gave some and some as pastors in particular teachers. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, we read the following describing biblical leadership. An overseer, there's another word, a synonymous word for a pastor, then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, and here's the key, able to teach for our passage here this morning. In Titus chapter 1, verse 9, we hear similar characteristics. Holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. And then one more. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 reads, The elders, another one of those synonymous terms, who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Beloved, this is God's design for a mature church. Biblically qualified and called elders who are equipped 
for equipping the saints. Now, if we understand this clear characteristic from Scripture concerning biblical leadership, then a simple question remains. How might a mature church respond? Let me give you one thought. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 reads, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you now. Just in case there's a hint of temptation to see this as self-serving. Let me remind you of one key point within that passage and throughout all of the passages reflecting upon biblical leadership. Biblical leadership is called to watch over your souls. The elders will give an account of this. James says that this carries an even stricter judgment with it for biblical leadership. Know this, beloved. As your pastor, every decision I make takes this into consideration. Weighty and responsible was the responsibility that it is. I really believe this will play a huge role in allowing yourself to be persuaded, so to speak, by biblical leadership today and into the future. As, as Luke says in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, that these overseers are called to constantly be on guard for the flock. This is the weight. This is the responsibility of biblical leadership. But I really believe in all essence that this contributes and helps lead the flock to understand how we can be persuaded, how we can submit to biblical leadership. Now, before we move to the second characteristic, I want to give you an oldie but goodie quote It's so old that this commentator is free throughout almost every book on the Bible. And he's good and rich. And if you haven't looked at his work, I'd encourage you to do so. Matthew Henry stated the following concerning how a mature church can respond to biblical leadership. He said, Christians must submit to be instructed by their ministers and not think themselves too wise, too good, or too great to learn from them. And when they find that ministerial instructions, here's the key, are agreeable to the written word, they must obey them. 
Well, there's a reason why the written word places such a high priority on biblical leadership. These are the men who God calls to equip and instill the second characteristic of a mature church, and that's number two, doctrinal discipleship. Doctrinal discipleship. Look with me again at verses 12 and 13. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Now, we'll talk a lot more about the significance that, and of the collective emphasis of the body and our final characteristic next week. Nonetheless, you can see the significance here as well. All the same, how do we build the body? Well, if we're taking our cues from the so-called maturity models of the seeker-sensitive churches of our day, certainly there are suggestions. We're definitely going to need to trim down those messages to probably about 20 minutes because, you know, at the end of the day, people can't bear to learn and sit through more than 20 minutes in our day and age. We're surely going to need to insert some personal stories because that's what people remember and want more than substance and truth of the Word of God. Definitely, we need more music and less preaching. And by the way, that music needs to be hip and relevant as opposed to substantive and truth-filled music. And of course, you can't leave out the number one priority. Never preach a message that offends. Well, even though at times this seems to be more of the norm in our day, there's good news. Thankfully, God always has a remnant for his church. What's more, even when the church is hopelessly sinking in a quicksand of pragmatism, how do we do it better? How do we do it more simple? God always commissions voices of hope and challenge that provide a way of escape. An escape to solid ground. Not the shifting sand of quicksand of our day. An escape to solid ground that's anchored in doctrinal discipleship. Paul's communicating here. That biblically qualified pastors are building up the body through a greater knowledge of God. Amen? Moreover, 
This is not just all about pastors and leaders. Notice this phrase, for the work of service. This is about you, beloved. You all have a role to play in this equipping for the work of the service. Listen to how Paul describes discipleship in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. He says, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Pass it on in order that you will be able to teach others also. First of all, it's imperative and incumbent upon biblical leadership to be able to do so. But secondly, it's imperative and incumbent upon the saints in the same way to be prepared and ready for the work of service. Now, of course, this isn't always on the same level, even if you don't have the gift of leadership or the gift of teaching. We all have been called to make disciples, amen? We all have a role to play. The body of Christ is like an incomplete construction project. The footer has been laid, which is Christ, the cornerstone. But there's still electrical, plumbing, and roofing, and many more projects still to come. We have a role to play in this. To be a part of this construction team, so to speak. It's not just all about the foreman. What's more, there's no shortcuts in this project. As the immature church of our day compromises the integrity of the building, which is the body, a mature church works with patience and diligence Applying the fortified, tested, true tool of doctrinal discipleship. Amen? Now, you might have noticed throughout here, I keep using this adjective doctrinal to describe discipleship. This is critical for us to grasp. You can't have one without the other. They're interchangeably. Linked. I'll tell you this. There's not a single church in the history of mankind that would not want to pursue the unity of the faith that Paul alludes to in this passage. Every church wants unity of the faith. However, and unfortunately, most churches believe you get there by widening the net, so to speak. My friends, this in all honesty is nothing but a net full of gaping holes. Catching often false converts and perpetuating immaturity. 
maturity. Biblical discipleship will always press the envelope, so to speak, when it comes to a greater knowledge of God. What is doctrine and theology but the study of God? It's the mature measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That's our standard. A bar that we can never attain, but yet we always strive for. Paul understood this wholeheartedly concerning the level of commitment with doctrinal discipleship in his letter to the church at Philippi. When he said the following in Philippians 3, 8, More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. My brothers, my sisters in Christ, when you consider our commitment to a mature church, ask yourself this question. What does my interaction with my brothers and sisters look like? Is it always about sports? Is it always about farming? Is it always about family? Is it always about friends? And by all means, enjoy those common graces. Amen? I enjoy those common graces with many of you on a regular basis. But is that our emphasis Is that our priority? Is that all that ever comes out of our mouths when we come to fellowship and seek the Lord for greater depths of wisdom and knowledge that surpasses everything else? That's a challenge for us all, including myself. Is that a church committed to doctrinal discipleship? The French reformer John Calvin conveyed it as such, and I quote, Now in order that true religion may shine upon us, we ought to hold that it must take its beginning from heavenly doctrine and that no one can get even the slightest taste of right and sound doctrine, unless he's a pupil of Scripture. Beloved, are you a pupil of Scripture? This is where a mature church begins. Scripture, doctrine, and discipleship go hand in hand. You cannot separate them if we desire to be mature. So, here's another question again for us all. Do we desire to enhance our maturity? Do we desire to grow in our maturity? Still focused on this characteristic, once again, You have a role to play, beloved. 
Tozer said, and I quote, only a disciple can make a disciple. Only a disciple can make a disciple. I'll ask the question again. Are you a pupil of Scripture? To reference Calvin again, this is where sound doctrine begins. What's more, this is what equips you for the work of the service that Paul mentions here that he desired for the church at Ephesus and that the Spirit desires for us here today. Moreover, don't forget the sweet fruit that flows forth from this, the unity of the faith, which we all desire. Well, there's a whole lot more here that Paul says. But as I stated, I need to leave the majority of that for next week. As for this morning, though, Biblical leadership is where it begins. How has God called you today to be persuaded by biblical leadership? Is there even an evangelistic outreach on the horizon as an opportunity for you to participate? Is there a Bible study as an opportunity for you to be a part of? Is there doctrinal discipleship coming forth from this pulpit that perhaps challenges you, yet causes you to be a pupil of Scripture? Finally, if doctrinal discipleship is where it begins with the pastor elder, it's certainly equipping you for the work of the service as well. Are you a disciple? Every day. Every day. And I get it, we all fall short. But it is our commitment every day to be a disciple that everything else is but surpassing value to knowing Christ. Are you a pupil of Scripture? If not, know that there is grace for change. Amen? However, don't allow that to be your constant get-out-of-jail-free card, so to speak. If that's the case, then perhaps for some, 2 Corinthians 13.5 hits home when Paul says, examine yourself to see that you are truly in the faith. For others... We all go through seasons of difficulty. We know the results of immaturity. The best of us have experienced it and manifested it, unfortunately. Amen? Don't forget, this church needs you. 
with all your heart to pursue the knowledge of the Son of God as to a mature man. I get it. Some days are better than others for us all. Anyhow, by God's grace, we can walk in maturity in Christ's design for the church. You can do it. I can do it. And we can do it. Amen. Bow with me in prayer. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We appreciate, Lord, your word. We appreciate salvation, oh God. If it not for this great gift of salvation, we would be lost. Up a creek without a paddle, if you will. But, oh God, we thank you for the blood that you shed. The death that you suffered on our behalf in order that we might become a new creation. We thank you, Lord, that even in our weakness we find grace that is sufficient. Lord Jesus, we pray that by the power of your Spirit and the power of your Word and the power that flows forth from your people, that you would create in us here at Miriam Christian Chapel a church that desires to grow in maturity, that would reflect like a beacon in a dark world, light and hope that's anchored in biblical leadership and doctrinal discipleship. In the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray.